7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Malaria kills 260,000 African children every year. Why a vaccine approved this week could mark a turning point in the fight against the disease. And you may have noticed that it's that time of year again, when the world's leading scientists, writers and peace pursuers hope for a phone call from Scandinavia. We take a look at past Nobel Prize winners and ask, does who you know matter more than what you know? But first... Taiwan does not seek military confrontation. It hopes for a peaceful, stable, predictable and mutually beneficial coexistence with its neighbours. Today, the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, sent out a message to leaders in China. But Taiwan will also do whatever it takes to defend its freedom and democratic way of life. Over the past week, Beijing has been delivering a message of its own to Taiwan. If we want to attack, we can. China marked its national day on October the 1st by sending fighter jets and bombers towards, but not into, Taiwanese airspace. And it continued to do so for the next three days. Taiwan scrambled jets, broadcast warnings and tracked Chinese aircraft with missile systems. The island's defence minister, Chu Kuo-cheng, says that relations between the countries are at their worst in 40 years. He predicted that China would be ready to launch a full-scale attack by 2025. On Wednesday, the American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, pressed Beijing to stand down. The activity is destabilising, it risks miscalculation, uh, and it has the potential to undermine regional peace and stability. China has been ratcheting up these displays of military capability, threats of what could come if Taiwan refuses to accept Chinese sovereignty. Things have quieted down recently. On Wednesday and Thursday, there were no incursions by Chinese military aircraft. Gadi Epstein is The Economist's China Affairs editor. So this recent surge has ended. But this is, of course, a long-term strategy from China. They do this saber-rattling whenever they feel it might send a message. We should expect that there will be some sort of pretense for China to fly planes into the zone very soon. What was the pretext for the air incursions that began last week? And why is China doing this now? There are a series of things that are making the Communist Party unhappy. President Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan has refused to endorse the view of the leaders in Beijing that there is only, quote, one China. So they've basically cut off normal sort of interactions with Taiwan since 2016, uh, when she became president. 
And then perhaps even more significantly, there is just the increasingly cozy relationship between Taiwan and America, between Taiwan and other democracies. You see the Biden administration having pursued these statements with South Korea, Japan, the G7, and the EU, all supporting Taiwan or peace across the Taiwan Strait. The multilateral cooperation is particularly important to coordinate an approach to the situation that exists in Burma and to address issues critical to regional stability, such as maintaining freedom of navigation in the South China Sea and preserving peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. Declarations that are interpreted in China as sort of part of a broader containment or encirclement strategy. And then in September, you just had a flurry of activity. You had Taiwan seeking to enter this Trans-Pacific Partnership trade group. You had American and British naval ships sail through the Taiwan Strait. And then, of course, you had AUKUS, the American, British, and Australian security partnership that was agreed in mid-September. And it is the start of a new partnership. It is seen as countering China's aggression. Beijing said the pact was extremely irresponsible. And a week later, these plane flights ramped up again. So China's registered its displeasure by sending planes to make these threatening flights in the vicinity of Taiwan. Exactly what form have these flights taken? They flew 38 aircraft through Taiwan's air defense identification zone, and that is an area that they chose southwest of Taiwan that's not in Taiwanese territorial airspace, which is quite important to make that distinction. They essentially want to tire out the Taiwanese Air Force and send a message So they did that on October 1st with 38 aircraft. They sent 39 the next day. These were records for China. And then a couple days later, on October 4th, they sent 56 aircraft. And most of these planes are fighter jets. Is it possible that Taiwan could respond militarily if the Chinese keep this up? It's absolutely possible. So the rules of engagement that Taiwan has basically call for the response to get stronger the closer that China gets to the island of Taiwan. Now, in these cases, what they've done is scramble planes and send warnings, verbal warnings by radio. If they entered Taiwanese territorial airspace, there would be cause for some sort of higher degree of reaction. Now, few people think that a Taiwanese pilot is going to be empowered to actually shoot a plane down in that scenario, but it would certainly increase the risk. And what about the United States? I mean, how have they responded so far and might they do more to intervene? Early on, in the first couple days of this, it was pretty clear that senior officials were issuing messages in private to get China to stop. And really, there were some public statements, but they weren't that strongly worded. And it's important to note that on October 6th, Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, had a meeting in Switzerland, a six-hour meeting with Yang Jiechi, China's most senior diplomat and a member of the Politburo. And Sullivan did convey America's concerns about the flights. The nature of the relationship is that we can always have new developments that create more cause in China's mind, new developments that they consider provocations, and then in return, they will perhaps send more flights through the zone near Taiwan. One example is this Wall Street Journal report on October 7th that America has sent a special operations unit to Taiwan to train Taiwanese troops. So it's become a back and forth then, in which Taiwan or America makes some perceived provocation, China responds with the fighter jet flyby. Is it possible that this will develop into a real conflict? 
I think that's always possible. I mean, I think that one of the scenarios is some sort of accidental incident that leads to, let's say, a loss of life on one side or the other. There hasn't been a loss of life across the Taiwan Strait between Chinese and Taiwanese troops since 1958. And if that were to happen, you can just sort of imagine how it could spiral out of control with nationalist feelings in China, with pressure, even including from hawks in America, to not back down to China. And you have a situation here where America and its allies have committed to help Taiwan in some way or form to preserve peace and security, as they say, across the Taiwan Strait. You have statements like the Global Times, which is a jingoistic party-owned tabloid in China. They declared in April that if the Taiwanese government were to continue its quote-unquote hostile behavior, and by the way, working with America closely counts as that, China's fighter planes would be prepared to fly across the island and disregard the, quote, red line relating to territorial airspace. Meanwhile, Tsai Ing-wen just wrote in Foreign Affairs an article that's coming out later this month. The people in Taiwan will, quote, rise up should the very existence of Taiwan be under threat. So she's not backing down. China's not backing down. And absolutely, if there is an incident in the skies above Taiwan, it could lead to something worse. Adi, thank you very much for joining us. It was good to be with you. This week on our sister show, The Economist Asks, Anne McElvoy speaks with retired four-star US General Stanley McChrystal about the wider dangers of rising tensions over Taiwan. Taiwan could, in fact, become that flashpoint that causes, almost like the Falcons almost did between Argentina and Britain, become the flashpoint that starts a wider war. I think it's it's not at all implausible. And so the United States and the, and the world needs to really decide where they are on this. The problem is there's, there's always the argument that says, well, Taiwan doesn't matter. Find The Economist Asks wherever you get your podcasts. 
Slavia Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent. It has finally been endorsed for use earlier this week by the World Health Organization, even though uh, clinical trials actually reported on efficacy in 2015. 2015? Why did it take so long for it to be approved? So the World Health Organization really wanted to make sure that the vaccine works uh, just as effectively when it's used in what they call real-world conditions uh, in healthcare centers in Africa. So they did the so-called implementation pilot in three African countries, Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi, in which more than 800,000 infants were vaccinated uh, with a four-dose regimen, starting at five months of age. And because it's uh, four doses that you know have to be given over some time, uh, it took a while for results from this large trial to come in. And what were the results? Will it make a difference? And the vaccine, I think, will make a massive difference because it reduced by 30% the number of cases of severe malaria, which uh, lead to hospital admissions, which is a result consistent with what was seen in the clinical trials. 30%, that may sound quite low to a lot of people, having heard the sort of rates that were associated with COVID-19 vaccines. How good is 30%? Is it really good enough? Well, it may not sound like much, but one thing to keep in mind is that in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, children contract malaria six times a year on average. So, you know, 30% reduction in that, in something that pretty much every child has several times a year, is really quite big because, you know, every time they they run the risk of uh, of dying. And many of them do. Every year, more than 260,000 African children die of malaria before they turn five years old. So it's really, really a big effect. And also, you know, we should remember that children who may not die, but may become infected repeatedly, are also quite damaged because uh, they have stunting, which is a form of impaired growth. Their ability to learn is affected. So preventing even 30% of bad episodes of malaria is really big. And is the vaccine safe? Yes, the World Health Organization says that the vaccine was found to be safe after more than 2 million doses had been administered. There were three so-called safety signals that had appeared in the earlier smaller clinical trials, which were suspected to be potentially linked to the vaccine. But that turned out not to be the case when data from this uh, new large number of children was reviewed. And what about cost? How expensive is the vaccine to produce? Well, we don't know that yet because it hasn't been marketed. But the World Health Organization says the vaccine is highly cost effective by some estimates, which are a bit outdated. But still, malaria costs Africa $12 billion a year. So the next step is for Gavi, which is an international organization which buys vaccines for poor countries, to decide whether it will add RTSS to its portfolio of vaccines. And I think they will. So, Slaver, does the vaccine, in your view, mark a turning point in treating malaria? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are drugs uh, for malaria, but, you know, many children don't get them on time. And obviously, when they get really sick, uh, hospital care is not top-notch in Africa. So, uh, you know, preventing so many episodes uh, of malaria, along with the other preventive measures, such as bed nets, uh, will, I think, make a big difference in in the next couple of years. Slavea, thank you very much for talking to us. 
Thank you, Patrick. Good morning. This morning, the joint winners of the Nobel Peace Prize were announced. They are two journalists and free speech activists, Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov. Ms. Ressa and Mr. Muratov are receiving the Peace Prize for their courageous fight for freedom of expression in the Philippines and in Russia. At the same time, they are representatives of all journalists who stand up for this ideal in a world in which democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. The winners for physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine and literature had already been revealed. And for one new laureate on America's West Coast, it was quite the wake-up call. My only phone is a smartphone and I had it on Do Not Disturb in the evening, so I missed about three or four phone calls from Stockholm about two in the morning. Arden Patapoutian is a neuroscientist at Scripps Research and a joint winner of this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. After they couldn't get hold of me, they found somehow my 94-year-old father who lives in Los Angeles, also in California, and they got to him and he was able to reach me and, and, and let me know. So I heard it from my father, which is kind of quite a special moment. Many people had expected the medicine honours to be more focused on the pandemic this year, such as recognising the achievements in vaccination technology. Perhaps that's why it was a very big shock for me, because I was expecting that as well, I think. But the reality of that is that the Nobel Committee takes their jobs very seriously and there's a process to it. I'm sure Soon, perhaps even next year, that'll come. There's no doubt in my mind, at least. Although I don't have any control over the process. But that might not actually be true. Data analysed by The Economist suggests that Nobel winners have something of an influence on the decision process. The Nobel Prizes are probably the world's most prestigious awards in academia. Dolly Sesson is a data journalist at The Economist. And once the new laureates are named, every year the peers and critics start comparing whoever won to the previous winners. And that starts reigniting old debates about old snubs and peculiar selections. What sort of debates, snubs and selections are we talking about? In terms of snubs, there have been many famous ones. You have Mahatma Gandhi, who got 12 nominations. Tolstoy got 19. Neither of them received a prize. Stephen Hawking was passed over. And there are many others, Thomas Edison, Thomas Hardy, Edith Wharton. And in terms of why they were passed over, the Nobel Foundation's rules prevent disclosure about the selection process for each prize for 50 years after it's awarded. But we do have those records that have been released so far that do give us a clue about what it does take to win a Nobel Prize. And what do those historic records tell us? Well, the records show that Nobel voters handed out awards in 1901 to 1966, more in the style of a private members club than a broad survey of expert opinion. So the nominations are widely solicited. For the Peace Prize, you have government officials, jurists, professors, and others who are invited to submit names to a committee that's chosen by Norway's parliament. And for the other prizes, it's Swedish academies that solicit nominations from thousands of people, mostly professors. 
And once the committees research nominees and they pick their finalists, the full Nobel Academy votes on the winner. And what we found was that candidates who racked up many nominations lost. But those who had backing from other Nobel laureates tended to do a lot better. And how much better did they do? So the candidates that were nominated by previous winners, laureates, uh, went on to win at some point 40% more often than people who are nominated by folks who had never won a Nobel Prize. What we found was that Albert Einstein, every person he nominated, and he nominated 11, they all won the prize. And they ranged from folks who were already famous, like Werner Heisenberg, to lesser-known scientists like Walter both. And in at least two cases, his nomination seemed to prove decisive. How much attention do voters pay to the number of nominators? Historically, very little. In literature and medicine, the candidate who got the most nominations won just over 10% of the time. And in peace and chemistry, they were around a quarter. Only in physics, at 42%, did nomination leaders enjoy a large advantage. And there are many sort of egregious examples. In 1956, you have Ramon Menendez Pidal, who is a linguist and historian. He got 60% of all the nominations, and he still lost the Literature Prize. And he lost it to a fellow Spaniard named Juan Ramon Jimenez. So, Dolly, can we speculate about why nominations from former winners, Einstein or anybody else, seem to have had so much sway? It could be that laureates just have an unusually good eye for qualified candidates, or there is anecdotal evidence that at least in some cases, past winners helped nominees' chances rather than naming superstars who would have won anyway. And so in 1940, Albert Einstein backed Otto Stern, who was a particle physicist who had already been nominated 60 times by 35 people, and he won the next time the prize was given in 1943. And similarly, Wolfgang Pauli, who was a major quantum theorist at the time, his exclusion principle is a core tenant of quantum mechanics, he had received 20 failed nominations before Einstein, who was his colleague at Princeton at the time, sends a telegram to the Nobel Committee in 1945, and that's when Polly finally gets his prize. Dolly, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey. Thanks to senior producers Duncan Barber, Sam Colbert and Sam Westron. Producers Stevie Hertz, Alizé Jean-Baptiste and William Warren. And assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoy Oshindaro. Extra production help this week came from Emily Elias, Pete Norton and John Joe Devlin. Our sound engineers are William Rowe and Anthony Shaw. Jason Palmer, back on Monday. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.